technology podcasts can be a great way to learn about new apps and devices. But if you've listened to a few, you'll know that some are of a higher quality and more informative than others. I'm Jonathan Mosen, and I've been producing tech demos long before podcasts were invented, honey. I've put together a series of tips and tricks in an audio presentation called Record Tech Demos Like a Pro. For $19.95, I'll give you useful information on microphone considerations, recording options, editing, ensuring the presentation is useful to a wide audience, and more. Grab your copy of Record Tech Demos Like a Pro from the Mosin Consulting Store at mosin.org. Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosin. Well, it's the 25th episode of The Blind Side in this format. It's gone quickly. Thank you so much for downloading it and making this podcast so well listened to. Really appreciate that. If you would like to give us some feedback on the podcast, we love that. You can send us a good old-fashioned textual email or you may like to record a comment in an app on your smartphone or PC like the Voice Memos app on your smartphone or the recorder in Windows and attach that. That's fine too. Theblindside at mosen.org is the email address for either thing. Theblindside at mosen.org. Let's just preview what's coming up in the podcast in a moment. I'm going to be speaking with Gretchen Good of Massey University here in New Zealand about disaster preparedness. It's a topic that we talked about briefly in November last year following another big quake in New Zealand. And we've just had the anniversary of the Christchurch quake in 2011 that killed over 180 people. So it's a topic that's in our mind at the moment and some research on this issue of disaster preparedness has recently been released. So I thought it was an important issue. Whether you live in New Zealand or not, it is important to think about how you as a blind person would deal with a natural disaster. Later on, it's a good news story. We hear so often about people who have encountered discrimination in learning institutions and how they've struggled just to do the things that everyone should be able to take for granted. So it's nice to be able to focus on a really positive story. And this is Kayla Weathers, who has just graduated from Dalton State College in Georgia, where everything is peach tree. What is up with that in Georgia? When I go there for conferences, you know, conventions, that sort of thing, everything's peach tree something. I mean, I I know that's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but there's a lot of peach in Georgia, an awful lot of peach. Anyway, we'll be talking to Kayla about how she got a Braille diploma, which I think is really great. And they've gone to some lengths to make it a very authentic Braille diploma that she will always cherish. But I also want to talk to Kayla because she has just completed her thesis as part of her BA in English Literature on the way that blind people are portrayed in literature. I find this a fascinating subject because don't you find sometimes that you pick up a book and it's a pretty good book and then there's a blind character and the way that that blind character is represented is just so out of kilter with any semblance of reality whatsoever. It spoils the book and it's frustrating and you think, how are we ever going to educate the public? So Kayla's had a good look at this as part of her undergraduate studies, and we'll be talking with Kayla a little bit later. Just a couple of notes, A Kappa at the Mosins is our talk show on Mushroom FM, hosted by Bonnie Mosin and me, and it's on Thursday nights at 9pm Eastern Time, and we'd love it if you tuned into that, and of course called in. We have had a few people say, are you going to do a podcast of A Kappa at the Mosins? And the thing is that we really do want people to listen live, 
Otherwise, if everyone listens to a podcast of a call-in show, we get no calls. So once we build up the numbers a little bit, maybe we will do a podcast. But right now, we really need you, if you wouldn't mind, if you're interested in the subject, to take the time to tune in live and give us a call and help us to keep the discussion flowing. What are we talking about on a cuppa at the Mosins this week? We are talking, baby, your car can drive you to totally mangle a Beatles song. Totally mangle it. Baby, your car can drive you. Yeah, it's the self-driving car discussion. I personally cannot wait to get into a self-driving car. Hmm, would I take a second mortgage? Maybe that's a bit extreme. But I would do a lot to get a self-driving car. Uh, I wonder whether the reality would be as good as the image that I have in my head of the freedom that I would have if I could just jump into a self-driving vehicle without waiting for a cab or an Uber and just do my thing. Now, Bonnie, on the other hand, she's a bit more reticent. She thinks it would freak her out to be in a vehicle where there was no human in control of it and she'd be sort of cruising around there with this machine in charge and she's not sure she could cope with that. So I thought it would be great to open this one up and get your thoughts on self-driving cars. How soon do you think it will be before a blind person will own a self-driving car on a regular basis? Will we get to an intermediary point first where legislators will say, okay, you can have self-driving cars on the road, but there has to be a competent human in charge of them with an override button. So when will we be able to do that? And, and would you take up the opportunity to have your own self-driving vehicle. I also think in the wider scheme of things, there are some really big challenges for various industries of self-driving vehicles. You know, the Trump campaign was so successful because many people felt alienated from the current economic recovery. And they felt that, you know, maybe unemployment was trending downwards over consecutive quarters, but they weren't feeling that. And it seems to me that a lot of people do driving and if self-driving vehicles take away the profession of driving, if we think about cars and other vehicles in a brand new way, then there are some real economic and human condition things to think about there. And it's not just with self-driving cars, but a range of robotic questions in general. So it should be quite a wide-ranging discussion. And that will be on a cuppa at the Mosins on Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can hear that show on Mushroom FM, where we have a lot of really great shows, including a lot of music from the 50s through to the 80s. And the website is www.mushroomfm.com. That's www.mushroomfm.com if you want to find out specifically more information about the show. It's www.mushroomfm.com slash kappa, C-U-P-P-A. And now, stories making news in the blind community on The Blind Side. After the Kaikoura earthquake in November, The Blind Side assembled a panel of blind people who had experienced that earthquake to discuss what it's like living through an event like that as a blind person. We also spoke with somebody who'd been through the trauma of thousands of earthquakes in Christchurch including the fatal earthquake of the 22nd of February 2011. So for them, the Kaikoura earthquake was kind of old hat. We're returning to the theme of disaster preparedness and aftermath today as we speak with Dr. Gretchen Good of Massey University in New Zealand. Gretchen is herself vision impaired and one of her children is vision impaired. She and a fellow researcher have completed extensive research on the impact of the Christchurch earthquakes from a blindness perspective 
which will hopefully result in lessons learned and a greater awareness of our needs when, not if, future events like this occur. It's really great to be talking with you again, Gretchen. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. You began your work on this after the first significant earthquake, and then you just finished, and the second one occurred, which is extraordinary. What was the inspiration behind doing that research initially? Well, I have a background, a professional background, in working with people who are blind and vision impaired, uh, and that came about because I myself am vision impaired. So all of my teaching and research has been related to blindness after the first earthquake, which was non-fatal, but certainly caused a lot of chaos down in Canterbury. My colleague, Suzanne Phibbs, uh, it, it was her inspiration to say, let's go down there and talk to people about what their experiences were like. Initially, there was a moratorium on research in the Canterbury region, so it took us a while before we could get in there to talk to people. But as quickly as we could, we assembled a team of Suzanne Phibbs and myself and another colleague, Carrie Williamson, and uh, got ethics approval and got funding. And then we spoke to the Association of Blind Citizens, who helped us locate uh, the volunteers who were willing to talk about their experiences. Why was there that moratorium imposed initially? Well, the same thing happened after the Kaikoura earthquake, I understand, and after the fatal earthquake that happened later in 2011. Uh, just to keep researchers out of there so that other important things could could be happening at initially at the time of the crisis. Mm. And at the time that you began this then, you had, I think, 10 participants that you identified, and that was after the 2010 quake. Yes, we interviewed 12 participants to begin with. Okay. Uh, a magnificent uh, group of people who wanted to volunteer through the Association of Blind Citizens. Everybody was very eager to tell their story. And that was one of the lessons we learned, too, that telling your story is really important. And that, that really helped people recover and heal and get back on their feet and gain some semblance of um, feeling together again. So telling the story is really important. And we were very grateful that those 12 volunteers uh, were really happy to have us come into their homes and to be interviewed and to let us take photos of their neighborhoods and their homes and their footpaths and uh, the obstacles that had been created by the earthquakes to their daily lives. There were a number of points that really stuck out for me as I was reading the material that you put together. And I'd like to go through some of those. One of them was... One of the contributors mentioned that they had been told many times to get under a door jam if there was an earthquake. And of course, they were in bed initially because it was just after four in the morning uh, on a Saturday when that earthquake hit the first one. Uh, they were unable to do that anyway because of the extent of the earthquake. Now, of course, we're told that you're not really that much safer under a door jam at all because you could get hit by a swinging door. And the modern advice is don't do that, don't go for a door jam. And that made it clear to me that we've got to make sure that information about earthquakes that's current and updated and, and considered best practice is widely disseminated in an accessible format. That's right. And that's, uh, I don't know if it's a mythology, but that's the thinking still. Uh, and I work on the seventh floor of a building here in Palmerston North, and we feel the tremors quite often. 
people run to their doorways. Mm. So that's something you're right. We need to get the information out there, what the safest thing is to do. And also for people who may might not be able to get themselves into a safe position under a secure piece of furniture, somebody who uses a wheelchair perhaps or somebody who is older and, and unable to bend that way or somebody who's younger and unable to bend that way to get under a table. Um, you have to have the best alternatives for yourself to keep yourself safe. And in fact, the modern advice is, look, if you're in bed, stay there, cover up and just try to ride the quake out if you can. That's right. So our research participants knew exactly what they should do. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm sure by you – know, and it was, it was interesting to just watch the way that their attitudes evolved over time. So they perceived the initial 2011 quake as a pretty traumatic event and they talked about the impact. And then you see some of those same participants who did agree to participate in later interviews – being much more relaxed and saying, look, you know, you've just got to ride them out and they will pass. Well, we got a mixture of responses from the second wave of interviews. Yes, after the fatal earthquake, we had to wait out the moratorium, but we were uh, we got ethics approval and further funding and we contacted the original participants and we had lost a number of them. Uh, not directly as a result of the earthquake. Some had moved out of the area, some had lost the opportunity to live independently in their own homes and had gone to live with families or into nursing homes. And, and we did have some deaths, but it was not as a direct result of the earthquake. But it is possible those deaths were an indirect result of those earthquakes. But that second round of interviews, as you said, some people did say, well, you know, we learned from the first one and, and uh, we just ride these out. But there was also a deeper sense of introspection and what does this all mean and what is life all about? Many of them had, you know, there was lots of lives lost in that earthquake and it had a big impact on people. People did start to have some uh, anxiety issues, uh, not just our participants, but lots of people in Canterbury and children uh, schools will report this too. The second earthquake did have a big impact on people and their lives, and it became much more than a nuisance and an inconvenience of new barriers to your, you know, to your transportation. The second earthquake you know, took lives, and it resulted in some real anxiety issues for people. People's uh, guide dogs some of them became ineffective and were not no longer able to work. Uh, the the dogs had were impacted by this as well. Yes, and some of the comments that were being made by guide dog users in the research really did hit home for me because I know that there's there's a lot of misunderstanding in the community about what precisely it is that a guide dog does for a blind person. And so there was this expectation that even though bus routes had changed and not just bus routes but in some cases the whole topography of the place had changed that it would be okay to let a blind person who uses a guide dog off somewhere unfamiliar because the bus is stopping somewhere different now and expect okay the guide dog's going to sort this out for the blind person so not a problem and there's just a lot of misconception out there. Absolutely. Um, Jonathan I don't know if you know but I uh, use an assistance dog my 
family and I, uh, we, I have two children with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of my vision impairment, I utilize the dog as a guide in some circumstances. And um, shortly after the, the most recent earthquake in November, I had a conference down in Wellington. And I would have liked to have had the dog with me down in Wellington. But I opted to leave her at home because I know the possibility that her work could have been her ability to work could have been impacted if she had endured uh, a rather a traumatic earthquake with me in Wellington the week after the 7.8 last November. Yeah, so you made the conscious choice to leave the dog behind, which of course inhibits your mobility and and, and your your freedom and your sense of of well being to some extent. Yes, to some extent, but I also had to think about if I had to get to higher ground in a hurry, as some people did at that 7.8 earthquake in November, I my options for transportation might have been a bit limited with the dog. Not every car would have had room for my large Labrador. And I, you know, so I had to think about that, and I also didn't want her to lose her ability to work with my children. For me, the November earthquake last year was a different kind of experience because we would have been right in the thick of it had we been in Wellington where we live, but we were in fact in the United States. And so my role then was as a parent extremely worried about my kids back home. And this segues me nicely onto the next point, which is the role of radio for everybody, but particularly for blind people, because it's a medium we tend to rely on and depend a lot. And it seems to me that blind people are affected adversely by two trends here, really. The first is that a lot of radio stations are automated these days, particularly in the middle of the night. You know, computers can do wonderful things. And that can affect how quickly some radio stations adapt to the fact that a major natural disaster has occurred. And the second is that in this social media era, there seems to be more of a focus, more of an emphasis on being first rather than being accurate. And you made the comment in your research that there is a lot of misinformation that gets circulated. Um, And you talking about getting to higher ground really brought this to mind for me because there was just so much confusion about, okay, what's the nature of a tsunami warning? Am I supposed to get out or am I not? And of course, if you are supposed to get out as a blind person, it's highly unlikely you're going to be able to call a cab to do that. That's right. That's that's right. And ab- about the radio stations, after the first earthquake, people did say that some information they got was more frightening than helpful. They didn't know exactly where to tune in for the best, most accurate information. It, things Anecdotally, things seem to have improved after the second earthquake. Would you agree with that? Was it? I thought so until Kaikoura, which of course hit on a Sunday night, just gone midnight uh, on a, so going into Monday morning, but way in the middle of the night again. And I wonder whether, you know, we, we, we had a string of earthquakes that hit in the middle of the day. And I wonder whether that's lulled us into a sense of self-complacency about how much improvement there was. So on the public broadcaster, Radio New Zealand, I thought they did an outstanding job, but yet there was still conflicting messages coming from people who should not be giving them, like civil defense. And it seemed like it just took a long time for civil defense and other emergency organizations to be properly activated to deal with a situation that occurred at midnight in a weekend. Very good point, Jonathan. 
And I, I have some concerns with civil defense as well, and I'm wondering if we are learning anything from these experiences because I have recruited civil defense professionals to come and speak to groups of disabled people, and they haven't been able to tailor their talks to disability needs. And and I'm really concerned that there is some education and awareness amongst civil defense people that about the needs of people with disabilities. Although the overriding message that we've got from our our research is that you have to be prepared to take care of yourself. Now, yes, I was really interested in this, and I'll come back to that in a second. But regarding civil defense, I think one of the issues, too, is for us as blind people to be realistic about the kind of predicament we may find ourselves in. I remember a few years ago, probably brasher, certainly a lot younger, but probably brasher. I remember getting a talk, uh, attending a talk from a civil defense official. And at the time, I sort of thought it was a little bit patronizing because many of us like to think of ourselves as self-sufficient, independent people. I think the reality is that nobody is particularly self-sufficient or independent uh, in a disaster like this, blind or not. But I, I wonder whether those people who've never been through something like this really appreciate just how vulnerable having a disability can make you in this situation and therefore may not be as ready to receive the message as they might otherwise be. Mm, yes, another good good point. Yes, or I, I was contacted by a parent yesterday who had read some of our news articles about our research saying they would like to register their son who has a disability with a disability organizations so that he could be looked after in the event of a disaster. The best thing you can do is get to know your neighbors. Contact your neighbors on a regular basis. Get to know them. Exchange phone numbers. Have two people arranged to call you in the event of a disaster, and you can arrange to call two people also to look after other people's welfare in the event of a disaster. And that's our best bet. Our neighbors are our best bet in a disaster. Yes. So there were some people who said, look, there needs to be a database of vulnerable, susceptible people in situations like this so that the database can be consulted and people can be called. And you made it very clear in your research that's not best practice. And you base that on findings from the big uh, Japan earthquake. That's what the research tells us. Yes. And also it would um, for privacy reasons, these databases don't always work well. And if it's, uh, you know, who would monitor a disability register in the event of a disaster, people are taking care of their families and the people who are around them. You noted the increasing relevance of text messaging, and it's a particularly helpful tool for the deafblind who are unable to listen to the radio. And if they have a braille display connected to a smartphone, that is maybe their only tool of communication in a situation like this. But with the socio-demographics of the blind community obtaining funding for devices that make text messaging accessible, and then the training to use that technology can be really tough. And I wonder whether this is something that needs to be taken up with governments in greater force, given the, the, the potential power of this technology in a disaster like this. That is a great idea, Jonathan. That is one good way that, uh, you know, our experiences and, and the research that people are doing on disability and disasters 
can maybe we could impact policy to some degree uh, for this specifically get get some resources to help people learn how to text and get the equipment they need in order to do so. I was both intrigued and disturbed to read that the Blind Foundation, which is New Zealand's primary provider of blindness services, said that they had contacted all registered members after the 2011 quake, but nobody that you interviewed remembered being contacted. And I just wonder whether it really is plausible that they all had forgotten or whether there is a wider systemic issue here. Well, we wondered that the same thing, and we don't have any reason to doubt what the foundation told us. The Blind Foundation did tell us that they've contacted every member. It, we don't know how soon after the fact it would have been or what, in fact, they would have been able to do if they couldn't reach somebody. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, if the phone rings and doesn't get answered, you don't know whether that's because somebody's moved out to safer quarters or what the reason is. Yeah, and there again, that's another good reason to get to know your neighbors. They are your best bet in a disaster. You summarized at the end of your research a whole bunch of key points, and I may well go through those at the end of the interview that people should be mindful of. And and they're pretty obvious things like getting to know your neighbors, uh, making sure there's an emergency kit with water and uh, batteries for a transistor radio, all those sorts of things. Do you think that if another major quake were to happen today, would we be better off now in terms of being prepared to cope with it than we were back in 2010? Or is there still a lot to do in this regard? I'm certain there is still a lot to do. I think, however, people know what should go in those emergency kits now, but I don't think people have the emergency kits now. <laughs> That at least we're one step closer. I think everybody knows what should go into their kit. You don't think so? You you don't think that – I mean, here in uh, where I am, we regularly check. You know, I have a reminder in my phone to make sure that the water's up to date and that the batteries haven't kind of drained over time and that sort of thing. But you don't think that's commonplace? Uh, It may be more commonplace where you are than where I am, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah. We're a bit – I guess a bit more vulnerable. Although you guys got that – Kaikoura quake pretty badly in Palmerston North, didn't you? Woke, woke a lot of people up there. Yes, we did feel it. Yeah, we did have have shaking. Um, but I think you guys are by the water. You're more likely to be impacted by a tsunami or the tsunami warnings, which are alarming. And those are those are distressing to people and to service animals and to you know and specifically to children. So. Uh, I'm glad to hear that you think perhaps Wellingtonians are better prepared now than than they might have been before. I don't know if that's true all around the country. Mm. There's a website called Neighbourly, and I don't know if you've had a look at this, but Bonnie keeps telling me that we should sign in and check it out. I don't know if it's accessible or not, but this is sort of trying to help people get to know their neighbours in a 2017 kind of world. It's the social network for your neighbourhood. I don't know if you've looked at that to find out what a, whether it's a viable option for us to be using. Uh, I am a part of Neighborly, and I do find it useful. I do, however, find Facebook has a little more rapid response to queries and trying to make connections with people. But Neighborly uh, 
it, it's well organized and it has certainly has a lot of good potential. Right, and they may well complement one another because I suppose the thing with Facebook is you have to know the names of the people that you want to be friends with, whereas with Neighbourly, I think you can kind of sign up to your local neighbourhood so that even if you don't know the names of people around you, that may be one way to find that out. Yes, and that yeah, that's a definite good benefit to Neighbourly. So that's a good point. Check it out, Jonathan, and you can give us your report on what you <laughs> about Neighbourly. Do a review of Neighbourly. Yeah, Bonnie <laughs> keeps telling me we have to get on this thing because there's some potential mm, risk in knocking on random doors as a blind person, I suppose, and introducing yourself as a neighbour. I mean, if you're in an area where perhaps there may be some undesirable elements, you want them to know that you're a blind person when a natural disaster occurs and you don't want to be forgotten about. But at the same time, there may be certain people you may not want to know that you're a blind person. That's true. So maybe that's why it's really good to get to know who your neighbors are. Oh, my goodness. I see the dilemma. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, you know, as you say, we, we can't rely on, on government officials and databases when they're swamped. So it seems like it's the only way. It's a, it's a risk one can choose to take. That's right. Our research participants talked about going to their neighbors, bringing cups of tea. That was so important. And it was something that almost anybody can do. And it was, you know, our participants who were all blind and most had additional disabilities as well, were really involved in helping other people. And it might sound like a little thing, but it wasn't. Visiting neighbors, bringing a cup of tea. Uh, One woman loaded her husband and their and and what they needed to make hot cups of tea to the people they could get to and I mean, that's a huge contribution yeah one of the things about a natural disaster is that it really brings people together in quite a special way and it's a shame that it takes something like this for that human emotion and, and plain decency to be so evident but there are some very heartwarming stories out there yes yes uh, my colleague Suzanne Fibs also spoke the other day to a reporter about the story she knew of a woman who uses a wheelchair and who was stuck in her home at when she heard a tsunami warning, knowing that she should leave and, and go to higher ground. And she couldn't access her car because the electricity was out and the, the garage door ran on electricity and she couldn't access the key to get to where she needed to go. And she heard all of her neighbors getting into their cars and going. Very frightening. It'd be good if she had been able to contact a neighbor to say, "I hey, wait a minute, I'm still here. Mm. So even having a phone number or two of local neighbors is a desirable thing to do. That's right. You're in the business of of promoting independence most of the time. Rehabilitation is a a key emphasis of yours. How do we reconcile what in some minds may appear to be a conflicting message that most of the time we want to be perceived as employable, independent, contributing members of the community, but at times like this, there's absolutely no escaping the fact that we need sometimes a lot of extra help. Well, everybody does in this situation. Think about families with, you know, small children or families who don't have uh, transportation. You know, everybody needs help all the time. But uh, I also believe that independence can mean knowing who and when to ask for help. 
it's a degree of comfort, I suppose, right? With sort of comfortable in your own skin to to ask when you need that assistance. That's right. That's right. And anybody without a car, if if all your neighbors were heading to higher ground, I would hope everybody would be willing to ask somebody who did have a car to help them get to higher ground. And and to find a way to reciprocate that. You could bring the brownies if you made them. <laughs> very good. <laughs> it's it's a real pleasure to talk to you about a very difficult subject. And for those of us who've been through uh, more than our fair share of quakes of late, it's a sobering subject. It's something we really have to think carefully about and prepare because in a country like New Zealand, it's, as I said at the introduction, it's when the next big one's going to happen and not if. Uh, so we need to be ready and hopefully a little bit more prepared. So I really appreciate you sharing what you've found with us. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. There is one more point I would really like to make Please do. for those who are listening. Uh, I have a real concern for children with disabilities who are in schools and for disaster planning. I would really like to push the idea that every child who has an individualized education plan because of special needs, that that at every annual meeting for that child for planning for their education, that somebody just ask the question, what will happen in the event of a disaster for this child? Just to make sure all, there's enough medication or specialized equipment or communication devices or and, and to ensure that that child gets reunified with their family and is safe and that the school can uh, manage all the children in a school in the event of a lockdown or in the case that they get stuck there for up to three days, which we're all told might happen in a disaster. It's amazing how it's the little things that often get missed. It could be something as simple as spare hearing aid batteries. And somebody who runs out of, of hearing aid batteries in a stressful situation like that, it's a very serious thing. Or even just having an emergency kit that contains another white cane in case you can't find your cane when you really need it. Just little things that can make yeah. the big difference. Yes, extra insulin or a communication device that doesn't rely upon electricity to be available. And somebody who could communicate with a child who perhaps uses sign language if, you know, the one person who does sign proficiently isn't in the building at the time of a disaster. I'm so glad that we have you thinking about these things and reminding us of um, of some of the things we should be thinking about. So I hope we can keep in touch in future, and I really appreciate that. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. That's Dr. Gretchen Good of Massey University here in New Zealand. And here are those key points that I mentioned during the interview that I would summarize at the end. Have a transistor radio and batteries at hand. Learn to communicate by text message and keep your cellular telephone charged. Have at least two people or organizations contact you following a disaster. Establish good relationships with neighbors and be willing to be a contact for others. Register with local disability organizations and make sure you regularly update your information, but do not count on agencies to be available to act on your behalf in a disaster. Keep your shoes under your bed, keep a flashlight on the doorknob and have spare white canes available. Remember that GPS may not be helpful after an earthquake. Expect transport lines to be disrupted. Online information about bus routes may not be reliable and you may need to telephone to confirm current bus routes. Arrange to travel with a friend until obstacles are clear and routes are re-established. 
Dog guide users should keep cane skills sharpened. In a disaster, your dog may become lost, injured or traumatized and may not be able to assist you. Store food, medications and waters to last for 72 hours for you and your dog. Secure furniture in your home. Prepare a first aid kit. Keep copies of insurance information, medical records and details of medication in an easily accessible sealed plastic bag and email an electronic copy to yourself. Secure assistance for a thorough inspection of the safety of your home and neighbourhood. Learn how to rig up a home portable toilet using plastic bags in the toilet bowl and keep bags of cat litter handy to remove odours. And finally, tell your story and listen to others. We'll return to our guests on the blind side in just a moment. Ransomware, malware, spyware. The internet has opened up so many opportunities for us as blind people, but there are plenty of scary dudes out there who want to steal your identity. Although it may seem the height of chic to connect to a free public hotspot somewhere and keep on working, doing that without the appropriate security, well, it's kind of like jumping out of a plane without a parachute, really. When you connect to an unencrypted Wi-Fi hotspot, it's like broadcasting on the radio for everyone to tune into. It's true, more and more websites are taking care of this by being encrypted, but there are still many that are not, and that means unscrupulous people can find out lots of stuff about who you are, and in the worst case, even a password or two. So don't connect to a public Wi-Fi hotspot without HMA VPN. Running the app on your computer or smartphone encrypts all your traffic, keeping it safe from prying eyes when you get some work done in a cafe. Identity theft is time-consuming, potentially costly, humiliating, and it happens to real people like us. So do the smart thing. Subscribe to HMA VPN. Enjoy those free public hotspots and peace of mind at the same time. For more info, head on over to mosin.org slash HMA. That's mosin.org slash HMA. Get peace of mind and support the Blindside podcast at the same time with HMA VPN. Our place, our issues. The Blindside with Jonathan Mosin. Kayla Weathers recently graduated from Dalton State College in Georgia with a BA in English Literature. The first blind person to graduate from the college, Dalton went that extra mile and provided Kayla with a Braille diploma. Now, we often hear about discrimination that occurs at learning institutions. So the fact that we have a super accommodating college to talk about is a good news story in itself. But the other reason I invited Kayla on the podcast is the subject matter of her thesis – She's written a fascinating account of the way that blind people have been portrayed in literature over the centuries. Kayla, it's great to have you on the podcast. And first of all, congratulations on your graduation. Thanks. It's great to be here. What was your inspiration for investigating the way that blind people are portrayed in literature? Um, Well, I think it mainly stemmed from... um, the fact that I've always been an avid reader and throughout many of the books that I read uh, as a kid and a young adult and growing up in those sorts of things, I didn't really find a whole lot of blind people in literature. And when I did find them, uh, they weren't particularly, I guess, indicative of how I functioned as a blind person. I felt and uh, really didn't inform society of proper portrayal proper portrayals of blindness 
I suppose one of the dilemmas that authors have is that people don't necessarily want to read about ordinary characters, do they? Because ordinary is kind of boring. And yet as blind people seeking to overcome stereotypes in society, we don't really want the whole myth to be perpetuated of blind people with superpowers and that kind of stuff. So there's a there's a fundamental conflict of interest there, I think. Yeah, definitely. So what's happened over the years is this portrayal of blind people as either very helpless or incredibly super gifted and overachieving. Is that a consistent thing that you've spotted in literature over the centuries or has there been some variation over time? Um, I think it's been pretty consistent. What I did in my particular um, exploration of the topic was I looked at how blind people were portrayed in um, throughout history and then looked at the way that they had been portrayed um, throughout literature. So I think it's, it's a little of both still. One of the first times I really thought about this was after reading the amazing Kenneth Jernigan address, which he did back in 1974 at an NFB convention called Blindness is Literature Against Us. And it was actually part of a trilogy where he covered the media one year and and history another year. And it's some of my favorite Jernigan writing, actually, those, those three speeches. There were times in that address where he was fairly upbeat about some of the ways that blind people have been portrayed throughout the years? Um, Yeah, I read that and used that as one of my sources. And um, I actually mentioned that in um, a novel that I referred to in my thesis called The Broken Kingdoms by N.K. Jemisin. And um, it's a fantasy book. And the character in that, the main character in that story is um, blind, and I think the author portrays blindness pretty well in that particular story. Yes, you mention in that that the character who's... She, she's pretty much the protagonist in that book, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't read it, but based on your description of it. So she is is pretty capable. She just got on with her life without doing particularly anything special other than the fact that she could see magic, which may may have spoiled the whole thing a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it definitely did um, kind of put a damper on things. So how should authors portray blind people, do you think? I mean, what what would be your ideal portrayal of a blind character? Um, well, to me, you know, as someone who has been blind from birth and has, you know, I guess, grown up with it, um, I think they should try to portray blind people as people who are ordinary that just have to do things a a bit differently and to make blindness, you know, not so central to the character's development or the the story. Um, But I think a lot of times people use blindness as, oh, you know, this, um, I guess, instance where they have to have something whatever it is to to compensate for that. So I I kind of wish that authors wouldn't do that because it takes away from, um, or or I guess society's conceptions of what they think, you know, blind people can do, or they think, oh, you're blind, so you must have really, really good hearing or, you know, a really refined sense of touch or something like that. 
I was talking to my wife, Bonnie, who's actually from Georgia as well. And uh, she wrote a similar paper to yours, but probably either just before or just after you were born. So, you know, you've, you've <laughs> probably got a lot more updated information there about this sort of thing. And she was making the comment to me that, you know, that some of the research or lack thereof that authors do when it comes to the way that they portray blind people is astounding. And she was talking about one book that she read where the author discussed how a group of family members got together and bought a seeing eye dog for their, this particular family member and, and how there was this image in the book that you could just sort of buy a dog and uh, <laughs> and just sort of bring it home and um, just no research at all into into how these things were actually really done. Yeah, I still think there's um, some of that, that that goes on uh, in literature today as well. I wondered whether you had read the Robert J. Sawyer books, um, the WWW trilogy, which came out in the first book, I think was 2009 when it came out, which was a science fiction trilogy where the protagonist was a blind teenager. Did you come across those books? Yeah, I have. It's been a number of years, but yeah, I've read them all. I wonder what you thought of them because the portrayal of the character, Caitlin, seems to me incredibly accurate, so accurate, in fact, that he got into, this. the author is Robert J. Sawyer, and he got into a lot of detail about even the Jaws commands that yeah. Caitlin was using. And yet I know that some people felt a degree of discomfort with the way that the plot unfolded because ultimately she got her sight through a sort of an electronic implant device and many people felt that that spoiled it. I wondered what your feelings were about that trilogy and where it went. Um, I thought, kind of agree with you that, that the author did a lot of research into blindness and even, you know, in the, with the Jaws commands and those sorts of things. Um, but I guess as far as getting her sight back, you know, that was, I guess, a bit of a disappointment. I, you know, kind of wish that she had remained um, blind throughout the whole series, but I think that would have, you know, definitely changed the um, the way the series unfolded uh, greatly. So, Yeah. I mean, I, I thought that he did an amazing job, though, um, and the need for her to get her sight was central to the book in the sense that it was all about what would happen if the web developed a kind of a consciousness. Um, mm -hmm. But but still, I thought it was a pretty positive portrayal overall of a, of a regular oh, yeah. yeah regular teenager just getting on with stuff. You also mentioned Helen Keller in the book. And, of course, I've got kids and every so often one of them will come home and they'll say, you know, we're, especially when they were a bit younger, they would come home and say, we're doing blind people this week, Dad. And, uh, you know, so we're doing blind people at school. We want to take you along as a sample, you know, a real, <laughs> real living, breathing specimen. And, you know, yeah. um, but the one thing that always comes up when the kids are doing blind people at school is Helen Keller. And everybody's read that book. And there's a pretty, at least here in New Zealand, there's a pretty common book on Helen Keller that a lot of the school libraries have that has the Braille alphabet on the back. And it's actually in raised Braille. And whenever I go to a school and talk to little kids, they shove this book into my hand and ask me to <laughs> confirm that it really is the Braille alphabet on the back. I wasn't fully able to to comprehend the point that you were making about Helen Keller in your thesis, but it seems that you had some degree of 
discomfort with the way that she is portrayed in literature and biographies? Um, a little bit, yeah. I mean, I think she did a tremendous amount for blind people, but I feel like a lot of biographers, particularly the ones that might have not interacted with a competent blind person before, um, kind of attribute her success to the fact that she just overcame the obstacles that she was faced with. Um, but her success was due to the fact that she overcame deafness and blindness as opposed to all of the other, you know, things that she did in her life, that they they see that as her biggest accomplishment. Yes, I mean, it's a remarkable achievement, isn't it, by anybody's standards, that somebody who wasn't able to hear and comprehend uh, spoken language was able not only to uh, obtain the gift of communication through the tenacity and the persistence of Annie Sullivan, but ultimately even speak. I mean, it really is, I mean, by anybody's standards, it's a, it's a remarkable story. Yeah, I mean, particularly with, you know, not having access to a lot of the technologies that we have today, it's, it's a pretty, um, pretty neat thing that she was able to do. Can I ask you about this term that I hear bandied about a lot lately? And it's, it's a term that's just recently started to be used in common terminology. And this is this inspiration porn thing. And I, I find have you, you've heard that term, I take it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I find it a little bit difficult to know what is inspiration porn and what isn't. For example, there's a lieutenant governor in Washington state just recently elected, and he's totally blind. And we oh. hope to be interviewing him on the podcast in the very near future. We had an interview scheduled and he had to reschedule because of a, an urgent commitment. Now, I want to talk to him about the way that he does what he does as a blind person, the way that he campaigns, the way that he overcomes stereotypes about blindness, because as you know, we're so often limited by other people's perceptions of what we're capable of. And yet if you do an interview about this, about somebody who is in an arena that is unusual for a blind person, you risk being accused of doing inspiration porn. And I'm not sure where we're going with this um, because surely we should still be saluting and celebrating people who are achieving in areas that have typically been off limits to blind people. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. And I think um, interviewing people who are in fields that might not be necessarily considered um, fields that a lot of blind people go into are kind of helping to break down some of the barriers and misconceptions that still kind of exist about what blind people are capable of. So, I mean, I, I think it's a really cool idea. Yeah, it's just a fine line, isn't it, between the whole aren't you blind people marvellous thing and, and just yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're trying to investigate Definitely. how somebody has overcome what they've overcome. Um, mm, it, it's something that I wrestle with sometimes when talking to some blind people who have achieved great things, you know, how you, how you best play an interview like that. You have graduated from Dalton State, and this was a new experience for them because mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's quite a small college, is that right? I hadn't heard of it before. It's in, in Georgia. Yeah, it's in the uh, northwest corner. We've got about 4,000, 5,000 students, I'd say. So it's, a, it's rather small, yeah. 
Mm. And why did you choose it? Um, well, I wanted a school when I was looking at schools that had a real sense of community, um, a place that I could really get to know my professors and not just be a face in the sea of students that they you know, encountered on a daily basis. And it was really impressive. As I said in the introduction, we so often hear about people who have issues being accepted at learning institutions and really fighting for the basic things that they need to maximize their potential. And here we have a great news story where they go that extra mile and actually give you your diploma in Braille. That's a pretty special thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. How did that come about? Did you ask for the diploma in Braille or did they volunteer it? Um, well, it actually came about, I ha was having a conversation with my um, advisor who actually was um, my advisor for signing up for classes, but also served as kind of the um, advisor for my senior thesis as well in English. And I just made kind of an offhanded comment to her one day about, you know, never having receiving um, a diploma or certificate in Braille. And uh, she talked to Andrea Robertson, who is the Disability Support Services Coordinator. And I guess um, throughout my time at college, I had worked with the AMAC um, Accessibility Solutions and Research Center, which is an agency that helps to provide students with materials in accessible and alternative formats. So they were actually the ones that um, made the diploma. They have tactile graphics printers and uh, certified Braille transcriptionists and things like that. So I had been working with them, you know, throughout um, all four years of school. So that was just kind of um, something that they, they did for me. And um, like I said, they made it on the tactile graphics printer and it has the text of what the print diploma says and then they also made the seal um as a as a graphic that i could feel it's a wonderful thing that's something you really cherish i'm sure oh absolutely yeah and, uh, i remember them asking me well do you want it in ueb or do you want it in <laughs> and i was like well ueb would kind of be cool but the transcriptionist was like yeah but you're going to teach blind students right so you can show them this and be like, well, back in the day, this is how it was done. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so you got it in, in, in contracted American Braille yeah. in the end, did you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. What do you hope to do for a career? Um, well, I want to get my master's degree in um, teaching blind students from Louisiana Tech University and uh, just kind of give back to um, a community of mentors and to be uh, like some of the teachers that I've had growing up that have been really influential and instrumental to my success and, um, you know, teach blind students skills like Braille, assistive tech, uh, daily living skills, and those sorts of things. Yes, I've been around long enough to kind of read the buzzwords, man. And I know from some of the words, the terminology, the phraseology that you use in your thesis that you clearly have quite strong NFB connections there. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So that's been an important part in your life? Oh, absolutely. I um, got involved with the National Federation of the Blind in high school. And I guess up to that point, I really hadn't had a lot of exposure to uh, blind people that were really doing things with their lives and were successful. You know, the, the blind people that I knew um, had, you know, multiple disabilities and so might not 
go on to, you know, college and pursue employment and those sorts of things. So um, I actually went to one of the um, NFB training centers, uh, Blind Incorporated in Minneapolis, Minnesota, to kind of gain uh, some more independent living skills and cane travel and confidence and those sorts of things. And that was a really um, important step for me and as far as getting uh, the confidence and skills that I needed to be successful in college. And what specifically will you want to teach once you graduate from Louisiana Tech? Um, I'll probably be an itinerant, most likely. Um, so just kind of traveling around. Um, obviously, I'll have to live in a city with good public transit and those sorts of things. But, um, you know, like I said, teaching Braille and assistive tech and uh, daily living and things like that. Right. So and you'd be going into the mainstream environment and uh, kind of visiting visiting kids in the mainstream and ensuring they get the resources yeah. and the education that they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, it's a, it's a great story. I mean, the the thesis is interesting. Do you publish that online at all? Um, so you know, yeah. I haven't. So if you have any listeners who like know of any um, literary slash disability studies journals that I could kind of pitch it to, um, that that'd be great because I'd love to you know do something more with it. I worked so hard on it that you know I kind of like to get it out there so the rest of the world could read it. Yeah, I don't know whether the Journal of Vision, Impairment, and Blindness take that kind of stuff or not, but but that yeah, that might that might be worth a try. Yeah, but I did find it fascinating to get your take on this, and it's one of the one of the pitfalls, I suppose, of the fact that there aren't actually that many blind authors who have published works in the mainstream, if you know what I'm saying. And I think yeah. that, that that's what's happened to other minority groups is, for example, the portrayal of racial minorities has improved considerably since there have been more authors who are members of those minorities publishing. And we don't have that many blind authors writing in the mainstream right now. Mm-hmm. I had a really hard time kind of finding, you know, books. I'm I'm really glad that I, you know, had read so many over the years and kind of, you know, kept them in my, uh, in my head because that was, that was, uh, definitely a problem. Finding sources, um, for this took, took quite a while. But, you know, reading your thesis, it made me realize that, uh, you probably, and I, I hate to sound like a bit of an old codger saying this, but then I guess <laughs> I am a bit of an old codger saying this. You probably had it much easier putting this together than say, Bonnie, my wife did, uh, you know, 20 odd, 20 plus years ago, um, because now you've got so much access to electronic material, um, Bookshare, Kindle, iBooks, so many other uh, repositories. Oh, it's really good, isn't it? All the literature you can access now. Yeah. And, you know, with the help of a librarian and, you know, kind of scouring the Galileo databases as well as the other resources that you mentioned, that, um, you know, definitely turned up some really great resources. Do you still have cause to use human readers in a situation like this, or do you find that in the kind of work you're doing, English literature, that human readers are largely redundant now? Um, I personally haven't used human readers a whole lot. Um, I did for a bit of it. I had to get one of the books that I used as a source um, via interlibrary loan, and I guess I could have scanned it, but I don't have a great scanner and OCR package at the moment. I'm looking into resolving that, but I had, um, you know, 
someone read me the sections and, uh, you know, help me scan it and get it into an accessible format. So, Well, congratulations on the thesis and the graduation, and we'll look forward to finding out what comes next for you. So I appreciate you taking some time to be on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.